and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, The Buddha and I, Indian Influence on Islamic and European Thought. Last time, we discussed modern-day scholars who have noticed parallels between ancient Indian thought and ancient Greek thought. But the search for such resonances is not distinctively modern. It was already part of an ambitious intellectual project launched by the medieval scientist Al-Biruni. His treatise on India, completed in the year 1030, was aimed at an Arabic-speaking readership who would thereby be equipped for encounters with Indian culture. Al-Biruni's approach is a comparative one. As promised at the outset of the work, he systematically juxtaposes the ideas of the Indians to those of Greek philosophy and science. In some cases, he even points to the same parallels between Indian and Greek philosophy noted by contemporary historians, such as the transmigration of souls. Indeed, Al-Biruni identifies a belief in reincarnation as the distinctive characteristic of the Indian creed, like the Trinity in Christianity or the observance of the Sabbath among Jews. The reason Al-Biruni could presume familiarity with Greek ideas on the part of his readers is that a prodigious Greek-Arabic translation movement had made those ideas available before his time, back in the 8th to 10th centuries AD. At around the same time, some Indian texts were also translated, with efforts focusing on scientific works. There were Arabic versions of medical works, like the Sushutta, and in the middle of the 8th century, an astronomical handbook called in Arabic Sint Hind was produced at the behest of the Caliph al-Mansur. In general, Indian astronomy and astrology were an important source for these disciplines in the Islamic world. Beyond the sciences, there was also the Kalila Wadimna, a literary work based on a Persian translation of an Indian book of fables about animals called the Pachatantra. Readers of Arabic could especially thank one family for making Indian culture available to them, the Barmakids. Several of this clan were influential in the caliphate of the late 8th century, and they hailed from Tokharistan in Bactria, the only area that had fallen under Arab rule where Buddhism and Sanskrit literature were still actively studied. With this background, the wealthy and powerful Barmakids took an active interest in the science of India. We are told that they summoned Indian medical scientists and philosophers and dispatched a fact-finding mission to India itself. A document on Indian culture, written for one of the Barmakids, is lost, but the 10th century bibliophile Ibn Nadim claims to have seen a copy written out by no less a personage than Arkindi, the first Muslim thinker to make explicit use of Greek philosophical sources. The same Ibn Nadim knows of the Buddhists in Transoxiana. He calls them the Shamaniya, a term that goes back to the Indian word for the renouncer movement's shramana, and appears elsewhere in Arabic literature. Particularly intriguing are reports about a debate between the early 8th century theologian Jahm ibn Safwan and a group of Buddhists who argued that his belief in the god of Islam could not be substantiated on the basis of empirical evidence. So, at a very early stage, a full century before Al-Kindi, who is usually recognized as initiating philosophy in the Islamic world, there was at least fleeting awareness of Indian ideas about the sources of knowledge, or pramanas. Thus, Al-Biruni was not the first Muslim intellectual to engage with India. Still, he went far beyond what had been achieved up to his time. This was possible because he was attached to the court of Mahmud al a warlord who made destructive incursions into India. 
Al-Biruni is frank about the enmity that Indians bore towards Muslims as a result. He was able to work together with scholars who were, presumably under considerable duress, brought to the court of Mahmud. The result was a kind of small-scale translation movement between Sanskrit and Arabic. With the help of his Indian advisors, Al-Biruni prepared translations of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra and the Samkhya Karika. He was also aware of and used Gaudapada's commentary on the latter text. In addition, Al-Biruni had access to an Arabic version of the Bhagavad Gita, which, to judge by his quotations, often diverged from the version known to us. Furthermore, Al-Biruni and his collaborators translated in the other direction from Arabic into Sanskrit, producing versions of works by Euclid, Ptolemy, and Al-Biruni himself. Sadly, these are now lost. The upshot is that his treatise on India is a remarkably well-informed document, which includes extensive quotation from Sanskrit sources. Al-Biruni relates these sources not just to elements of Greek thought, but also to Christianity, Judaism, and Manichaeanism. Islam is implicitly given a special status by being exempted from this comparative project, but he does point out the affinity between Indian philosophy and Sufism. What Al-Biruni does not do so well is to convey any sense of the diversity of Indian thought. He sees the ideas of the Indian elite as being a single body of doctrine, which he frequently contrasts to vulgar popular beliefs in India about which he is openly disdainful. But at least he's an equal opportunity elitist. When explaining that the Indian elite worship God alone, whereas Indian commoners often indulge in idolatry, he adds that ancient Greeks were also idolaters, and that the everyday Muslim would no doubt venerate images of the Prophet or Mecca if given half a chance. As that passage indicates, Al-Biruni is impressed by the tendencies towards monotheism in Indian philosophy. The first thing he tells us about the religion of the Indians sounds pretty much like a statement of Islamic monotheism. For them, God is eternal, free, omnipotent, and resembled by none of his creatures. Apparently taking Patanjali as a key for understanding the other Sanskrit sources on which he draws, he presents Indian thought as a single harmonious teaching, intended to liberate the soul from ignorance and from attachment to matter, so as to attain union with God. This may remind us of Vedanta, but that is a tradition that goes unmentioned by Al-Biruni. He does discuss monism as a point of similarity between Indian and Greek thought, but his focus is on the soul's relationship to a single all-powerful god, something we achieve by detaching our actions from desire, as instructed in the Bhagavad Gita. Al-Biruni's tendency to lump all these ideas together into a single system, and to see them as echoing the ideas of other cultures, sets the tone for subsequent engagements with Indian thought. In the Islamic world, it would be a while before there was another engagement along these lines. In the 12th century, the theologian and philosopher Ashahrastani wrote an important survey of religious doctrines and did discuss India, but his treatment is disappointingly sketchy and does not seem to draw on al-Biruni. Better informed is the historian Rashid ad-Din, who wrote around 1300 and had the advantage of new information supplied by a Buddhist scholar. There was also some interest in the mystical traditions of India. The 12th century illuminationist philosopher Suhravardi insisted that his own teachings were in accordance with the sages of India. Knowledge of yogic meditation practices was disseminated through translations of a work called the Pool of Nectar. A study of the Islamic reception of this work has however concluded that it provided only a very narrow window onto the world of Indian religions 
and one that to many readers was hardly distinguishable from the standard occult and mystical practices found in Islamicate society. It would really be the Islamic invasions of India that created the conditions for renewing al-Biruni's project. His observation that Sufism seems a good match for Indian religious belief was borne out by the success of Islamic mysticism in the subcontinent. This syncretic trend would come to a climax in the work of Dada Shikul, a prince who lived in the 17th century during the time of Islamic domination in India. As already discussed in episode 189 of the History of Philosophy podcast, Dada Shikul translated some of the Upanishads into Persian and wrote a treatise called Confluence of the Oceans, the title of reference to the agreement between Indian and Islamic culture, with the latter understood primarily in terms of philosophical Sufism. By this time, information about Indian culture and philosophy was finding its way to Europe as well. The results were not always edifying. Dada Shiku's younger contemporary, John Locke, mocked the conception of a mysterious underlying substance put forward by some of our European philosophers, as he put it, by comparing it to the fanciful proposal of a poor Indian philosopher who imagined that the earth wanted some thing to bear it up, and suggested that the earth rests upon an elephant, which is further supported by a tortoise. Another great name of European thought rose to the defense of India. Leibniz chastised Locke, writing that, This Indian conception of substance, for all its apparent thinness, is less empty and sterile than it is thought to be. Several consequences arise from it. These are of the greatest importance to philosophy, to which they can give an entirely new face. Obviously, these passages do not suggest a deep knowledge of Indian intellectual history, but increasingly there were opportunities to learn more. Alison Gopnik has raised the intriguing possibility that David Hume may have been acquainted with Buddhist philosophy. When he was writing the first and most significant statement of his own philosophy, The Treatise of Human Nature, Hume was in residence at the Jesuit academy La Fleche. Here he could have encountered a much older man named Charles Dolou, who had been on a trip to Siam in the 1680s. Dolou was in turn acquainted with Ippolito Desideri, who had done missionary work in Tibet. Both Desideri and Dolou were well informed about Buddhism, with Desideri even writing a treatise about what he called a false and peculiar religion observed in Tibet. Sounding a bit like Al-Biruni, he stated that people should know more about this religion in order to contest it, and highlighted what he calls its Pythagoreanism, presumably meaning its commitment to reincarnation. Kopnik summarizes her findings better than we could, writing that, In 1735, Hume, apparently rusticating in the peace of a small town in France, was only one remove away from the ideas of philosophers thousands of miles and a cultural gulf away in Siam and Tibet. Perhaps then it is no coincidence that some of Hume's proposals, including his empiricism and skepticism about the self, are strikingly reminiscent of Buddhism. To this we can add that Hume's treatise was most certainly influenced by Nicolas Malebranche and Pierre Bell, who in turn knew something of Chinese philosophy. Malebranche even wrote a work in 1708 called Conversation Between a Christian Philosopher and a Chinese Philosopher, while Bell's Historical and Critical Dictionary, published five years earlier, offered a description of Chinese philosophy that consists basically in a presentation of the Buddha's life and thought. Again, a skeptical attitude towards the soul comes to the fore here, giving us another conduit for the Buddhist doctrine of no-self into European culture. 
Yet another source for Indian ideas was the well-traveled Francis Bernier, who had been to India and served as court physician for none other than the aforementioned Mughal prince, Dara Shikhu. Bernier tells of how he exchanged ideas with one of the court intellectuals who helped Dara Shikhu translate the Upanishads. Writing from the Persian city of Shiraz in 1667, Vanier said, Do not be surprised if, without knowledge of Sanskrit, I am going to tell you many things taken from books in that language. For he had benefited from a three-year collaboration with a pundit. The two had philosophical debates, facilitated by Bernier's own translations of Gassendi and Descartes into Persian. Again, we can forge a link to Hume here. Bernier made known the Indian metaphor comparing God to a spider who extends filaments out from itself and then withdraws them. In the same way, the divine creation will ultimately be undone as all things collapse back into God. In his dialogues concerning natural religion, Hume refers to this analogy and ascribes it to Brahmins. He is, however, dismissive of the idea, saying that it is a species of cosmogony which appears to us ridiculous, because a spider is a little, contemptible animal whose operations we are never likely to take for a model of the whole universe. As we move forward into the 19th century, we finally see Europeans catching up with Alberuni by making Indology a serious intellectual enterprise. A key figure here was Henry T. Colebrook, who translated mathematical and philosophical works from India into English. There's another tantalizing connection here, this time between Colebrook and the philosopher John Stuart Mill. You'd expect Mill to know quite a lot about India, given that his father, James Mill, was an administrator in the East India Company and author of the Colonial Manifesto, A History of British India. Yet the younger Mill's philosophical works failed to make any explicit use of Indian philosophy. He would, however, probably have known about a lecture given by Colebrook in 1827, which explained the materialist theory of mind put forward by the Charvaka school. As we proposed in an earlier episode, this theory is comparable to emergentism in the philosophy of mind, a theory that is sometimes traced back to Mill. He sounds rather like a follower of Brihaspati, founder of the Charvaka system, when he writes in his System of Logic that all organized bodies are composed of parts, similar to those composing inorganic nature, and which have even themselves existed in an inorganic state. The phenomena of life result from the juxtaposition of those parts in a certain manner. Meanwhile, Indology was also emerging in Germany, especially with the Schlegel brothers. Friedrich Schlegel learned both Persian and Sanskrit, and published a work called On the Language and Wisdom of the Indians while his brother, August Wilhelm Schlegel, took up the first German chair of Indology in Bonn in 1818. We can trace the impact of the Indologists in a figure such as Hegel, who was aware of Colebrook's essays on Indian thought, published in the Transactions of the Royal Asiatic Society in 1824, and who also reviewed August Wilhelm Schlegel's work on the Bhagavad Gita. This put Hegel in a position to evaluate the philosophical contribution of India, or at least it gave Hegel the impression that he was in such a position. For him, the Indians had reached only a rather primitive stage in the development of spirit, or Geist. They had a completely abstract notion of substance as a single underlying principle, which they identified with an equally abstract and empty subjecthood. Again, we see Indian philosophy being reduced to a monolithic teaching, with all emphasis being placed upon the monist strand within Brahminical thought. Hegel's overall assessment manages to combine extravagant praise with casual dismissal. 
In the formation of the Oriental world, we do find philosophizing too, indeed the most profound philosophizing, but insofar as it remains the most profound, it remains also abstract. For us, the real philosophy begins only in Greece. A more positive assessment of the Indian tradition can be found in Otto Schopenhauer, who on occasion went so far as to describe himself as a Buddhist. He was also tremendously impressed by material from the Upanishads, which he read in, in, in an 1801 translation based on the Persian translation of, you guessed it, Dada Shikoh. Schopenhauer said of this text, It is the most profitable and sublime reading that is possible in the world. It has been the consolation of my life and will be that of my death. It's not so easy to say whether Schopenhauer's admiration for Indian thought went together with actual influence on his own thought. He was quite explicit in claiming agreement with Buddhism, along with the medieval mystical author Meister Eckhart. In a passage not entirely free of Hegel's mixture of praise and condescension, he wrote, The Buddha, Eckhart, and I all teach essentially the same, Eckhart within the bounds of his Christian mythology. In Buddhism, these ideas are not encumbered by any such mythology and are thus simple and clear, to the extent that a religion can be clear. Complete clarity lies with me. However, Schopenhauer also insisted that when he began his great work, The World as Will and Representation, he was as yet unacquainted with Buddhist philosophy, or at least with those aspects of it that resonated with his own system. It's telling that, his appreciative mindset notwithstanding, Schopenhauer was still prone to lump Indian traditions together as if they all converged on a single philosophical doctrine. Our own tour through those traditions has revealed the stark opposition between, say, the Vedanta monism of consciousness and Buddhist skepticism regarding the self. But Schopenhauer saw little, if any, difference between union with the Upanishadic Brahman and the Buddhist state of liberation achieved through abandonment of desire and will. For Schopenhauer, Brahman was simply the will of his own philosophy, a self or subject that can see things as a whole, subspecie eternitatis, or from an eternal point of view is an idea that would later be taken over by Wittgenstein, who writes in his Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, the view of the world subspecie eternitatis is the view of it as a limited whole. The feeling of the world as a limited whole is the mystical feeling. In our view, this does not really do justice to the Indian sources on which Schopenhauer was drawing. As you may recall from our presentation of the Upanishads, we take its exploration of Brahman to concern the phenomenology of consciousness, it is the underlying subject of thought and perception, not a principle of agency or willing. This is not atypical of the European reception of Indian thought. By the time of Schopenhauer, vastly more was known about Indian philosophy than the Greeks could have known in antiquity. The translations from Sanskrit that we were missing in Hellenic culture were now available, and scholars like Colebrook and the Schlegel brothers were making India the object of sustained and careful philological attention. Yet, with such figures as Hume, Hegel, and Schopenhauer, we still see Europeans being influenced as much by what they assumed Indian philosophy should be saying as by what it really said. There would, of course, be much, much more to say about the engagement between Europe and ancient India. Here we have only touched on a few of the more famous names, and we have not taken our story into the 20th century, when two holders of the Spalding Professorship at Oxford, Sarvepali Radhakrishnan and Bimal Krishna Matilal, worked hard at convincing British philosophers to pay attention to the riches of India. Radhakrishnan's attempt to display India's rich tradition of philosophical idealism was unfortunately mistimed. By then, the short-lived school of British idealism had already begun to fall into disregard. 
Madhilal had greater success in introducing his Oxford colleagues to a rich vein of Indian epistemology. Peter Strawson, Derek Parfit, and Michael Dummett have all paid tribute both to Madhilal's own philosophical brilliance and to the importance of the Indian ideas he brought to their attention, in the case of Parfit, the Buddhist analysis of persons, and for Strawson, the descriptive metaphysics of Nyaya and Vaisheshika. Now, in the 21st century, there is really no excuse for philosophers to imagine, along with Hegel, that real philosophy began only with the Greeks. In that spirit, next time we'll be drawing this series of episodes to a close, with a quick review of philosophical developments in India since antiquity, and a few final thoughts on the contemporary relevance of the history of philosophy in India.